no matter how badly he wanted it, it wasn't found in God's word. And just because you want something desperately or bad enough doesn't mean that it's a conviction from God because God is shouting back and he's shouting back with his word. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So, really slowing things down tonight. We're just going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We left off with David making some pretty significant mistakes uh, in his fear of Saul, running away to the Philistines and pretending to be on the same side of the Philistines and even lying to the Philistine king. Um, So much so that he would tell the king that he was actually fighting with the Israelites when in truth, David was actually fighting against the Canaanites and helping both the Philistines and Israel because he was taking out enemies of Israel. Uh, and we were, we left off in the very beginning of chapter 28 where Achish, the king, which Achish is a title. Um, it just references to the leader of the Philistines, similar to how Pharaoh would be the leader of Egypt or Caesar with Rome or Herod over the area of Judea and the Roman Empire. Achish is a, is a title, and this means he's the king of the Philistines, has asked David to fight with him against Israel. And that's where we left off. Um, but the, the scene changes. And for the rest of this chapter, the rest of what we're talking about tonight, it's all focused on Saul. So tonight is all about Saul. Uh, We won't really get much mention of David. So let's dig in and see what we can glean from chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. So it starts out just by reiterating some things that we already knew about Samuel. Back in chapter 25, we found out Samuel had died and Samuel being so well respected was mourned across all of Israel and he was buried in his hometown of Ramah. Then we also get this interesting tidbit about Saul, that Saul had taken the mediums and the spiritists, so those who practiced portions of the occult and witchcraft, they were kicked out of Israel. They were forced to go into hiding because Saul initially did some good things. 
So this is a mention of something Saul did well at the beginning of his reign. He decided early on that he was going to follow God's law. Now, God's law four times in particular discusses mediums and spiritists and those who commune with the dead. So you'll find that in Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 19, uh, and two places in Leviticus 20, uh, verses 6 and verse 27. So you'll see reference to these things and the harsh treatment that God has for those who do this practice. And early on, Saul laid waste to this practice in Israel. And you'll see how things have changed. Verse four, then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. So they're encamped at Mount Gilboa. The Philistine army is encamped and Saul can see them. In verse five, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So what's, what's going on? Now Saul has been spending the vast majority of the latter part of his reign chasing down David. He's been fighting David, trying to protect the power of his throne that God is taking away from him. And Saul has spent so much time fighting the wrong enemy the Philistines were able to gather strength. And so when he sees the Philistines and he finally sees the real enemy of Israel, the Philistines, not David, he's shocked and afraid. I think that there's a serious principle we can all take from that. And I think it's going on a lot in our culture, right? How often are we fighting the wrong enemy? The Bible tells us that we wage war not against flesh and bone, but against the powers and the principalities of darkness in this world. So how often are we fighting against each other rather than the spiritual background behind evil ideas, right? How, how many times are we bringing the fight not to God or in prayer, but trying to get some answers in legislation without fixing the morality first? And so are we fighting the right enemy? Because when Saul wasn't fighting the right enemy, when the enemy finally confronted him, he was shocked and afraid at the strength of his enemy because he hadn't been paying any attention to it. And that's where Saul is standing right now. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So now Saul, much like the rest of us in our very human nature, he's confronted with the, the scariness of the enemy attacking him. And when he finally sees it and realizes it, he gets to a place where now he wants to bring God into the mix. This is the opposite of what we've been talking about on Sunday, where we've been talking about Daniel being a very consistent follower of God, always using prayer as his first weapon and being consistently in the word of God. Saul is someone who completely ignores God until it's convenient for him to call upon God. And so Saul is now confronted with something that scares him and he tries to go to God, but God won't answer. God's not answering him like he used to in his dreams. God's not answering him through the priests, through the Urim and the Thummim. Remember the priests would have those stones in the garment that would give the answer to God's will. God's refusing to answer through the priests. 
Um, and the prophets are not speaking to Samuel or to Saul anymore as well. So Saul is unable to find an answer from God. So verse seven, Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her and his servants to him. In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So now we see Saul doing something just insane. Saul, in the beginning of his reign, when he was following God, when he was listening to God's word and the prophets and the spirit, he kicked the mediums out of Israel. He kicked the, the spiritists. He kicked the, the witchcraft out of Israel. And now in his fear, because he's left God behind and he has no connection with him anymore, he goes and seeks out a medium. So he's left to this these rules for all of Israel to appear like a good king, but he's not following them. You know, it's the, the rules for thee, but not for me thing that, Paul has, that Saul has going on. And so he goes and he seeks out a medium in direct opposition to how he started his reign. So now we've seen the complete fall of Saul. He's done the complete 180. We started this chapter with listing something Saul did right, and he's turned his back completely on it. And he's going to utilize occult worship. Verse eight, Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up the one I shall name to you. So Saul disguises himself one, He's probably embarrassed because this is a rule that he made up, but also he knows because of the rule that he made that the woman will not give him an answer if she knows that he saw because she's afraid that she'll be put to death according to God's law. So verse nine, the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And she's responding to him, not knowing that it's Saul, saying, what are you doing? You know that if I perform the task that you're asking, I can be put to death because of King Saul. And Saul is confronted with the dissonance in his actions from his rule. He is confronted by this woman and he has shown how wrong he is. He created a law that was good for Israel, yet he's pursuing evil. Verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And really interestingly, upon that confrontation, Saul invokes the name of God for her protection. As Saul pursues evil, he uses God's name to, to say that he will protect her. As long as God lives, I won't punish you for doing this thing I know is wrong. Verse 11, then the woman said, when, uh, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. I think this verse is really interesting. It gives us a lot of insight into what's happening here. Saul has gone out to see someone who practices the occult. He is promised by God's name that nothing bad will happen to her for pursuing this evil practice. 
Yet when she does it and it works, she's shocked. Which goes to show you two things. One, there is power in the occult and it can work. But most of the time, it's probably a scam <laughs> because even she was shocked that it worked. And, and then she knew that it was Saul. So the king said to her, do not, do not be afraid. And what do you see? When the, when the woman said, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What's, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground. It bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? We're going to take a break from this narrative for a minute because this is where the, the thing I talked about in Luke that we we're going to study in Luke to make sense of this. Saul is asking this woman to bring Samuel up. That seems weird because from New Testament theology, we understand from 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. We expect to be in heaven when we die. So if we're expected to be in heaven, a place that is above, why is Samuel being raised up instead of being brought down? Well, that has to do with the fact that the sacrifices of the Old Testament covered sin, but they didn't place righteousness upon you. You still can't be in the presence of God unless you have the righteousness of Christ. So while the sins, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament protected you or covered your sin, it still didn't put you, didn't cover you with righteousness so that you could be in the presence of God, which is something very interesting and different about Christ's sacrifice because Jesus's sacrifice not only covers us with the blood of Christ so that our sins are covered, but we're also clothed in his righteousness so that we can stand before God as righteous so we can be in the presence of God. So if Samuel could not be in the presence of God and he was brought up, where was he? Because Samuel was still a righteous man of God. He was a prophet of God who's highly esteemed. Where was Samuel? Well, I want to bring up a couple of things because I want us to understand what's going on here. So this is going to help some of the pieces fit together. How is it that when Jesus was on the cross, he could look over at the thief next to him and say, today you will be with me in paradise. He looked over at the thief and said to the thief, today, on the day that Jesus died, you will be with me in paradise. But, after the resurrection, in the book of John, when Mary comes out to Jesus, Jesus says to her, do not touch me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Where is this place that Jesus went to with the thief on the cross if it wasn't ascending into heaven yet? because the sacrifice wasn't complete and we weren't clothed with righteousness until the resurrection took place. So what is happening? This is where Luke 16 will give us some insight and it will make all of these pieces fit together. 
what happened to the Old Testament saints, what happened to the thief on the cross, and what happens after the resurrection. So Luke 16, uh, verses 19 through 31, Jesus is telling a story. In your Bible, it might be labeled the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. However, several scholars don't think this is a parable because a parable is a fictional story that relates a biblical truth. But this is different from every other parable Jesus told in that in no parable that Jesus told was there ever a proper name used. Was there ever a person who was identified by name? It was always a father and a son, the woman and the coin, the shepherd and the sheep. It was never a name given, but in this story, he gives an exact name. So Jesus might actually not be telling a parable, but telling a piece of history, a true story about the afterlife. So verse 19 in Luke chapter 16 starts off with this. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs in came and licked his sores. This really gives you the humble state of Lazarus's life. He's someone who the dogs lick and he wishes he could have the crumbs that they eat. A dog's although an animal was also a derogatory term to the Jewish man. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in the torments of Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now we get the picture. So in the Old Testament, whenever someone dies, you'll see a reference to a place called Sheol, which is the grave. And this is a reference to the afterlife before the resurrection. So it's a special place that's set up in hell without torment. It's a place where you are set aside from torment until the ultimate sacrifice. And so when Jesus died, he headed into Sheol, into the grave, into Abraham's bosom. And when he was resurrected, the saints were freed to go into God's presence. And so you already see two different levels here though. There's Abraham's bosom. And then below Abraham's bosom is a place in Hades or in hell that the rich man is looking up and he can see Lazarus as he's tormented. And Lazarus is free from torment with Abraham as he's looking up. And so he cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. But I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham Abraham said, son, remember, this is your, this is, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, comforted and tormented. He's saying, look, you got the reward of your behavior on earth. You were selfish and self-seeking and greedy 
and you got to live in luxury while you were on this earth and you ignored me. That's what God is saying to this man. So you already got your reward. This actually really reminds me of Saul because Saul in the protection of his own earthly kingdom has rejected God and refused to look at him until he's in absolute dire need. And Saul has gotten to live in the lap of luxury on the throne. He's gotten his reward. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. And those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So this is talking, so anyone who has a theology where hell doesn't exist or people don't experience judgment for not accepting Christ or following, following God, this is in stark contrast to that because the rich man ignored God. He got his reward on earth for acting and behaving the way that he did. And now Jesus is saying in here that there's a great chasm between Abraham's bosom and this level of hell, and it cannot be reached. You can't go to one or the other. So verse 27, then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them that they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So Abraham responds to this, to this guy. And he says, I'm not going to send Lazarus up from Sheol. Your brothers have the same thing you had, the word of God. What does Romans tell us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They have all the opportunity in the world to come to faith. Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one rise from the dead. So even if someone rose from the dead, it would not persuade them to follow God if they're not going to accept Moses and the prophets. This also reminds me of Saul and the rest of his story. But let's get this clear. So we have Jesus is able to say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise because he's, he goes to Abraham's bosom with him. A place separate from torment and upon the resurrection, he is able to ascend to the father in heaven. But when Jesus is resurrected, he comes back to earth and he tells people not to touch him because he has yet to have ascended. But then there is a lower level in hell where judgment happens for those who chose not to follow God, those who do not accept Christ. And then in the book of Revelation, uh, towards the end, you have the lake of fire where hell gets thrown into the lake of fire and that's the second death. And so that's the three levels of hell, Abraham's bosom, the kind of holding place for judgment, and then the ultimate judgment, the lake of fire. And then you have the ability to enter heaven because of the sacrifice of Christ. Your, his blood covering you and covering your sins, but then also being clothed in his, in his righteousness allows you to stand before God because you are that, not, just co- not just are your sins covered, but you're clothed in righteousness and can stand face to face with God. And so after the resurrection, there is no need for this place anymore. This place is empty. Um, but this is sort of the idea where 
in Catholic theology where purgatory comes from, but it, it's not necessary because Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. The debt has been paid and now to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And so you only had one of two directions. But I hope that that cleared up some of what the afterlife looks like, the difference from the Old and New Testament. How could Jesus have said to someone that they'll be with him in paradise if he hadn't yet ascended to the Father? I hope all of that now makes sense to you. But back to Saul, because uh, Samuel is now going to confront Saul. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now we understand what that means. And Samuel is going to confront him. Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by the prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I, I have called you that you may reveal what I should do. So Saul is at the end of his rope. He's not getting an answer from the priests. He's not getting an answer from dreams. He's not getting an answer from any prophets that are alive. So he tries to bring Samuel out of the grave. And this is what Samuel says. Samuel said, why do you ask me? Seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy. And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So Samuel doesn't answer him. He doesn't tell him what to do. Samuel just reminds him that God already told him what was going to happen. And Saul refused to listen. And Saul continues to refuse to listen, even when someone was raised for the dead, proving the point of Luke 16. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Now this also, I hope Luke 16 helps you understand what Samuel means. Saul is not a righteous man. So how can Saul and Samuel be in the same place? Uh, it would be very similar to how the rich man could see Lazarus, but they weren't really in the same place. But Samuel is saying, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell length, full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul that he was severely troubled and said to him, look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice and I have put your life, my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. I don't know what she's really thinking. I don't know if she's thinking I need to be kind to the king or I'll die. I don't know if she's thinking if the king looks so bad that if he dies, I'll be accused of his death and I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to feed him. But she's afraid and she offers Saul food and he refuses and says, I will not eat. Now, I don't blame him for saying this. I don't blame him for being so freaked out that he doesn't have an appetite. 
But his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice. And then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked an unleavened, uh, unleavened bread from it. So she thought, so she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. So this is the beginning of the end of Saul. Saul is told by Samuel, he pretty much has one day left and his life is over. Saul is so far from where he started. Saul started out as this humble kid from the tribe of Benjamin saying, I'm from this small tribe. I'm not worth anything. What could God possibly want to use me for? To a guy who spent the last years of his reign trying to hunt down the next king in David, someone who wasn't his enemy, someone who God told him would be the next king. But Saul wanted to hold on desperately to his own power and his own throne. And he's coming face to face with the reality. And that reality is desperately wanting something really badly doesn't make it a conviction from God. Just because Saul wanted his kingdom to last forever and he wanted his throne to be the thing that remained in Israel, no matter how badly he wanted it, it wasn't found in God's word. And just because you want something desperately or bad enough doesn't mean that it's a conviction from God because God is shouting back and he's shouting back with his word. And that for me really defines one of the, main points of why we're doing this. This study is to grapple with what's in scripture, understand what God has said and make that the authority because God is the authority and the moral authority, not what I want. And I don't want to be like Saul. I don't want to want something so badly that I refuse to listen to God's voice and then come to the end and realize I wasted all this time fighting the wrong enemy because I was trying to hold on to what I wanted rather than to what God wanted. And that's where we're going to close out today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this story of Saul and Samuel and for the story that Jesus tells us about Lazarus and the rich man and the insight that that can give us into what you've accomplished, what it means for us to be able to enter into God's presence because of the righteousness you give us in the covering of our sins. Thank you that we can understand through Saul's failure what it means to seek after you. If we would listen to you and your word as our authority rather than the desires of our hearts, because you've told us in your word that the heart is desperately wicked. God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are open to your word rather than our flesh. And help us to learn how to seek that out. In Jesus' name, amen.